Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will rise, and there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people everywhere, everyone who found is written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who are led by many of, to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book. Until the end of time, many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Alright. So, we're really looking in this chapter more at the effect of Antioch's Epiphanes on God's people, on the Israelites. So at that time, Michael the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, we know of Michael being the prince that belongs to God's people. At the very end of chapter 10, in 10.21, he mentions Michael, your prince. And so Michael seems to have had a special connection with God's people and been like an angel that was especially uh, to help them to uh, stand guard over them here. And he's going to rise up. Now, you know, when Antioch's Epiphanes is wreaking havoc among the Jews, you know, what, you know, what was it that turned the tide? Well, we know that there were historically some very courageous Jews that stood up to Antioch's Epiphanes. Guerrilla warriors, the Maccabees, impressive. But, you know, that's not really what happened. I mean, that's what happened if you're a historian just looking at what's on the stage. If you're looking at what really happened behind the stage, you know, it's just kind of amazing that a small group of guerrilla fighters could drive away a guy like Antioch's Epiphanes with all his mind. Well, see, that's not what, that's not all that happened. And that's what we often don't think about and don't see and where the prophets gives us so much insight. There's more going on in the world than just the parts we look at. And what was going on is Michael will arise. And Michael is going to turn things around. Now he says there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. It is going to be horrible. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. The faithful people will be rescued because Michael's going to rise up. Now, don't think that the point of that is to now we ought to worship Michael. <laughs> or we ought to think, you know, great is God Michael. It's not like that. God is the one who's the source of Michael's strength. The, God, the angels are God's servants that he sends out to do his bidding. But you know how many of them it took to kill off the Assyrian army back in Sennacherib's day? One. You know how many it takes to come and deal with Antioch's Epiphanes? One. You know, one angel packs a wallop. You think about all that God can do 
I mean, I reckon God would have all kinds of power if he didn't have any angels. But you check out all the myriads of angels he's got. I mean, God's got, you know, he's got reserves to last for, you know, a few zillion millennia, you know, in terms of angels. So Michael rescues him. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There's a lot of debate about that verse, and I can preach it either way. Uh, I'm not sure if he's dealing with some sort of symbolic resurrection, uh, as he did like in the Valley of Dry Bones where the cause of God's people was raised, or if he's actually talking about the resurrection at the end of time. That, you know, those who died here, they'll be brought back to life too, either to life or to death. Uh, you can think about that one. You can comment on it if you want. But in three, he says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So these righteous people, the ones who lead other people to be righteous, they just shine more and more. You know, it looked like Antiochus was sort of the shining victorious one. But when, when Michael comes down, it's these righteous ones who've led other people to righteousness that shine forth. Uh, you've got a statement in uh, Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's kind of the idea. They, they become bright. But this is not for now. This document needs to be preserved uh, because it's for the end time, end of time. It's, it's, it's now end of time, end time, not mean the end of time, but it means way in the future. We've used that all the way through Daniel in that sense. All right, that's the summary, at least, of those verses. What are your thoughts and comments? Um, this is more for clarification, but didn't we say the same Michael we see throughout, like, like in Revelation 12? Yes. I mean, that's what yes. Okay. yes, as far as I know, there's only one angel Michael. Okay. And then that other one's talked about is Gabriel. Yeah, those are the only two we have the names of in the Bible. Undoubtedly, lots of other angels in the Bible. Right. We don't know one from another after it gets beyond those two. So. Okay. Cameron. In verse 2 of the start, when it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, could that also mean um, when Christ would die, when some of them came up from the ground, could that possibly? I suppose it could possibly, but I doubt it. You know, I don't know that any of those awoke to disgrace and everlasting contempt, for example. Looks like those were just the righteous. So. Cass? In verse 4 in my book, it says, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Yes. Let's run to and fro. Well, that's a good question. I think that it may be an allusion to how they're looking for answers and for truth and they won't be able to find it, whereas others will gain knowledge by listening to the Lord. So I think he may be making a contrast between some who never understand anything and others who really gain knowledge and insight. There's a passage in Amos 8, verses 11 and 12, that's a lot like that, that makes me think that. In Amos 8, 
Uh, he talks about the pe people stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the south. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So that makes me think that going to and fro here, may, or back and forth, may be an idea. Some of them won't be able to find the truth, and others will increase in their knowledge. Right. So does Michael fill a similar role for us today? Well, I don't know if I can affirm that for sure. Um, as far as like being a special angel for God's people today, wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, I think what we know about his role today is the idea in Revelation 12 of him waging war against the devil and casting him out, which was kind of the heavenly counterpart of what Jesus did on the cross. If, he probably does other things for us today, but I don't know that we've got a passage that we say that per se. We know in general, Hebrews 1.14, angels are servants to help Christians. That's Hebrews 1.14. Um, to and fro just means back and forth, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Okay. Other comments and questions through 12.4? Sounds similar. I mean, we looked a little bit last night talking about Matthew 24. Um, similar language. I don't know if there were some comparisons or contrasts trying to be made with, the, with those passages. You're thinking of Matthew 24, like 31? Is that... Is there something Great else? tribulation, such as okay, okay, 21, okay, okay. since the beginning of the world, or until now, nor ever shall. And so were people trying to say it had to be the same tribulation? Um, or a similar sure. one? <laughs> so, this, because this was saying, such has never occurred since in Daniel. Yes. Do you recognize that language as being stereotypical language for the worst ever? Right. You have that several times. I'd have to pick out some passages, but one thing I remember, if I can remember the texts, are you've got that kind of stuff with more than one of the kings. Um, let me see, I'm not sure if I can find that. Um... Look at uh, 2 Kings 18.5. This is Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. He was the best ever. But then if I remember right, it's uh, 2 Kings 23.25 about Josiah. that said, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Well, now, if you press that language, that doesn't work. You know, but we're not intended to look at those statements as mathematical equations. You know, this was a long time ago, and I think this was more of a personal thing than a phrase that caught on. But back in the 80s, uh, there were a couple friends of mine who really who would use a lot of the friends. That's a best, the phrase, the, that was the best ever. You know, that was the worst ever. They really stressed the ever. You know, I don't know, did that ever catch on? I think it's more of a 
you know, just kind of like them. I remember hearing that growing up. Was it? Maybe, maybe yeah. I, I don't know. Sometimes I'm not sure if phrases are just personal or if they're really <laughs> national, because I don't listen to media much. So, But anyhow, uh, that's kind of what this is. It's just like a, a way of saying it is the greatest ever. Not that there could not be another one equally great, but he was really good. The same thing's true with these distresses. When he talks about a distress, it's the worst ever. Never one like it before or since. Don't look at it mathematically. It's just saying it was really bad. Now, I, we could come up with some other parallels to that. There's several things like that. Uh, that would, would probably help somebody who's you know, struggling with that and felt like, well, then this forces it to be Matthew 24. I don't think so. A lot of times in the Old Testament, something was built or an altar, and it will last forever, or will be there until this day, or it will remain as a monument forever. I mean, that's another place for those. Well, yeah, forever, yeah, and the Old Testament just means for a long time. It does not mean forever and ever as we have in the New Testament. That's certainly true. Um, But there's several of those, you know, nothing like it before or since. You know, kinds of phrases with different things. I think there's a couple of Passovers where it says there was nothing like it before or since, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. I'd have to go back. I probably got some notes on that somewhere, or if not, we could, you know, invent some. But, uh, but that that's, you know, there's a lot of parallels to Matthew 24. But you would expect that. We have a judgment kind of period. Judgment language is judgment language. There's a lot of parallels between Matthew 24 and Isaiah 13 that talks about the judgment on Babylon. And you're like, so Matthew 24 has to be about Babylon? No. It doesn't mean that. It means God's judgments are like God's judgments, whether it's Babylon or Jerusalem or wherever else. And people will do that all the time with like this kind of a thing. You take a statement and you find it somewhere else. And you say, well, somewhere else it refers to this, therefore it must refer to this here. They do that all the time in Revelation. I mean, they're one of the most popular theories among brethren today is that like Babylon in Revelation is Jerusalem. I think that is not correct. But here's a typical argument that would be used. And and this is the kind of thing we've got to watch out for in Bible study. They will say, well, in Revelation... The Babylon in Revelation was a great harlot. And she was. And then, there are so many passages in the Old Testament that shows Jerusalem as a great harlot. Now, if you've got Babylon as a great harlot, all these passages that say Jerusalem was a great harlot, therefore Babylon must be referring to Jerusalem. Well, there's, there's several problems with that. But here's one big problem. There were other cities and nations that were called great harlots in the Old Testament also, like Nineveh and Egypt, if I'm not mistaken. I think there was another one or two. So that kind of nullifies your argument. You know, if it's not used exclusively for Jerusalem, you would expect it to be used more for Jerusalem because the Old Testament deals with Jerusalem a whole lot more. So that's not surprising. But to say, well, it has to be Jerusalem, because here's all the passages that use harlot for Jerusalem in the Old Testament. What about the passage use it for other things? Don't they count? And what it proves is that, well, it's a harlot. <laughs> but it doesn't tell you that Jerusalem's the only harlot there's been. I believe Tyre, that's one. Tyre was a harlot in the Old Testament. Um, so, you know, but that, that kind of thing, we're, we're quick to say, 
here's a phrase, here's a phrase a lot like it over here. Therefore, they must be talking about the same event. Maybe not. Maybe they're talking about the same type of event. Maybe a harlot is talking about a certain kind of behavior. And it applies to anybody who exhibits that kind of behavior. Maybe these, this judgment language is talking about a nation God judges and applies to whatever nation God judges. I think, I think we have to, you know, think through the whole uh, evidence base when we do those things. And so often that's not what we're doing. We just run a reference and we jump. And we say, same thing must be put to the same thing. Not necessarily. We do that today where we describe different things as the same. Well, that's a good donut. Well, that's a good CD. I mean, like, you don't eat a CD and you don't listen to a donut. You know what I mean? I think it just proves like everywhere. I think everywhere that Jerusalem is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's actually referring to Babylon. Yes. Yes, you could do that. Because if we go to Revelation, it says... Babylon was a There's probably somebody who's done that somewhere along the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, why don't we work it that way? It, it, we, you know, it's easy to be, you know, just kind of like, this means this, this means this, therefore this is that, and not really study the text. Mm-hmm. The people do that who are very like, well, the Bible's always right, and, and you can never contradict the Bible, and therefore, but but they they don't study it carefully. You know, I mean, if, if I say I'm, I'm really blue today, you know, a literalist would say, well, I must, you know, be oxygen starved, you know, or whatever. Well, we know what that means, but people come to the Bible and they won't allow the Bible writers the same freedom to express themselves that we do all the time. And so we've, just, we've got to really study in context and not make the Bible into some sort of, I don't know, this mathematical equation kind of stuff where we completely take it out of context and we completely destroy the meaning just because we're determined to press every statement literally or something like that. You know, we, all the Bible's right. It's absolutely right. But it's right when we study it and understand what it's saying. It's not right in some kind of a mystical sense. You know, it's right in an understood sense. It all has its proper context. It does. Just to make sure you're reading it. Absolutely. Oh, sorry for all that, uh, whatever that was. Um, other comments or questions? Right. Uh, could you... Can you repeat one more time? You said there's two ideas here in uh, verse... Two? Yes. Because, um, yeah, I, I, it's obviously uh, easily understood to think that that could be judgment day, you know, for everyone. What, what was it? What did you say the, there? the other idea would be to take this as somehow figurative. Um, there's some passages where it talks about, like, the Valley of Dry Bones, okay. and they were raised. Mm-hmm. And that was more like the resurrection of the cause. And maybe this, in the context, is how it looks like Israel had died and then they're raised back. But maybe the, uh, maybe the pro, that would be easier to see it that way if it weren't for the last part of verse 2, where he says, but the others should disgrace and everlasting contempt. Mm-hmm. You know, if it is just the first part, that might be the easiest way to understand it. It's a little yeah. bit harder for me to explain it that way with that part. Still in all, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just not confident on that one. I, I think it's worth... Uh, Considering that it could be symbolic in some sense, or that it could be, 
you know, really talking about the resurrection and judgment day. Okay. Certainly neither, you know, it's the resurrection and judgment day. It's true. Yeah. Even if this passage doesn't teach it. Just when, does New American Standard use a word like everlasting? Can you continue? Yes, it does. Okay, that's just, I don't know, I guess when I see that forever idea, that I guess that's why my mind jumps more to, you know. And that may be the case. Yeah. I'm, I'm certainly not I really arguing don't know either. against the judgment yeah, day. I don't know either. I, mean, yeah, I, think, I think that's a reasonable view on that text. And I do think there are passages in the Old Testament that clearly imply an afterlife. I mean, there are some Psalms passages and some others that I think, even though I do not think eternity and judgment day and so forth is as clearly spelled out in the Old Testament, I think there are passages that indicate uh, some understanding and some belief and some affirmation of that. But where did that transition, that, that increased understanding come about? Because you get into the time of Jesus... And you have people like uh, Mary and Martha who were speaking of the resurrection you know, very openly. You have the Sadducees who, who did not believe in that. And so, you know, was there some sort of yeah, the enlightenment? Probably, probably was more and more belief in those things, even in the intertestamental period. I don't know a lot about that period, so I'm not very good with that. But I think there was more emphasis <clears> on that through that. Even at that, just because they believe in the resurrection doesn't mean they understood that so clearly as what Jesus revealed. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? Alright, the rest of chapter 12 is essentially question and answer. Two of them. So we'll deal with the first question and answer uh, Segment, that's five to seven. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river, and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So, here's these two on either side of the river. Who should we take these two to be? Angels. I think so. That's, that, that would be my understanding of that. And so this is a question from an angel. The angel speaks to the man dressed in linen. Now you remember him, we may have sort of forgotten that he's the one that's revealing this stuff, uh, but he's from back in chapter 10, and the one who was sent down to give Daniel the understanding of all these things. So he's really the one who's been revealing this all along. And so the one of the angels asked this revealing angel, this man dressed in linen, what? What does he ask? Yeah, how long until the end of these wonders? When is this all about? Now, would it surprise you that an angel would have to ask a question like that? Shouldn't an angel just know? What about that verse we have in the New Testament? It talks about the, doesn't Jesus say you don't even know, or that the angels don't even know when his return will be? That's true. Not the Son, nor the angels, only the Father, Matthew 24, 36. Okay, thank you, I can't remember that one. 
isn't it in Hebrews that said the angels desire to look into things that were revealed? First Peter one twelve is the passage I'm thinking about with that. Things into which angels desire to look. You know, so evidently the angels don't know everything. And here an angel wanted to know when is this all about? Well, what does the man dressed in linen do? He raised both hands. That's interesting. What would it mean if he'd have raised his right hand and spoke? Been sufficient in court. Yes. <laughs> that would be a sign of taking an oath. What does it mean when he raises his left hand too? Double series? I think so. I think he's taking some sort of a double oath. You know, guaranteeing the truth of what he's saying. Maybe the other angel had a gun and he's sticking. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's just, it's just a way of God giving especially great security. That must mean this is an especially great revelation. Something important that we really know is absolutely true. Well, he says that it would be times, time, time, times, and half a time. Now, I think the idea of this is how long life will this period last until the victory is gained by the, by the, the, the faithful. And it's time, times, and half a time. That probably, the, the question mark of that really is what about the phrase the times? But most think that that was a dual form and therefore it refers to two times. So you've got one time plus two times plus half a time. We had that phrase earlier in Daniel as well. And so it's three and a half times. So, how does it help us to know that this period prior to God's people gaining the victory was going to be three and a half times? Well, what other number is three and a half closely related to? Seven. How is three and a half related to seven? It's half of it. Seven would be a complete, perfect God-type time. Three and a half is incomplete, imperfect, non-God-type time. It's saying that the time when Anak's Epiphanes has dominion is not a complete, full period. It's half of that. And he says, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. You know, they've got this this time where they shatter God's people. Isn't this the way God operates? When does God usually intervene? Just in time. Yeah, usually about five minutes after the last possible moment. You know, when, when we really thought, it's over, there's nothing else. And then... He comes and reverses everything. You know, when it just seemed like, you know, it was a last straw. And I think that's what you see here. You know, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, like, it's over. They, there's, they haven't got any more power to resist. All these events will be completed. The victory will be gained by the Lord. Michael will arise right after they've lost all their power, and it's hopeless. And so, the time period of the enemy is a limited time period, and then God demonstrates his power 
when man's resources are exhausted in their time of deepest need. That's what I see in the first question and answer uh, session. <laughs> Questions and comments about that. Cameron. For, with the angel raising up both hands, I was reading a commentary today about it, and it said that the angel in Revelation 10, verse 5, it raised one hand. can't remember which one. Right, I believe. But it said that back here in Daniel, it was more prophecies to come. And then, out in Revelation, half of it was done, and there was still some to come. What do you think about that? I don't agree. <laughs> Whose commentary was it? You know? Um, I can't remember. <clears throat> yeah. I don't. There may be something to that. Doesn't strike me as. I mean, I, I don't think the point would be to compare it with Revelation. I think the point here is you, you just make if you you know if you swear by your right hand and by your left hand too, you're like swearing by everything you got. You know, this is this is an oath where you're throwing it all on the line. I mean, it's obviously kind of an unusual way to do this. You know, this is not the norm, but it's a way of really emphasizing the security of what he's saying. And God did the same thing when He swore by Himself. Right. Now, couldn't He just say? I say it, and that would be fine, but to stress the point or to make a, make a more, I don't know, exaggerate the point, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, exceptional things that are trying to give more confidence and assurance to those who are receiving the message. Yes? Why does he throw in that he's wearing women? Well, it identifies the guy. Remember, he was the man back in chapter 10. I don't know if you were in that uh, class or not. 10-5. Uh, is, this is the man that's been involved in this the whole way through. We've just sort of forgotten him you know, over the last two or three months or however long it's been. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, he's, he's the man who's been the angel that was sent to reveal all this message to Daniel. Is there a particular reason why it could or could not be Jesus? Or does it make any difference? Well, it might not make any difference. You know, I don't know that what I think about this anybody else thinks makes sense. So it probably doesn't. It just bugs me when Hebrews 1 emphasizes so much how Jesus is greater than the angels to turn around and see Jesus as an angel. Like in Revelation 10, people try to say that's Jesus. Right. And the other thing that I would go along with that, I think back in chapter 10, it, I find it a little odd that Jesus was detained by the prince of Persia. If if this is in fact Jesus. When all other times, when there's any battles in heaven or anything, when God, Jesus, decides it's over, it's over. So, that doesn't fit with me either. Yeah, I don't find Jesus where everybody else does in the Old Testament a lot of times. I may, be, I may have missed that. I think that all celestial beings have a lot in common. And so, somebody who's coming from the presence of God 
You know, it's kind of like Christians look a lot like Jesus in some ways, and the closer they get to Jesus, the more they look like him. They're not Jesus. But they do have some traits in common. Well, so do the angels. Um, so, I don't know. Cameron. What about within the fiery furnace? Do you think that that was when it said that there is a fourth man with appearance as of the Son of God? What do you think that means? I personally think that was an angel. Right. Here, I think it's just an angel. Because, because at least the way New King James words it, that he swore by him who lives forever, it doesn't make it sound like he's talking about himself. But in other places we have in the Old Testament, at least the way New King James reads, is that the angel of the Lord swore by himself. And wouldn't that be wrong for an angel, if it's just an angel, to swear by himself? Because, you know, it's, it's just, it put... There are it's a little weird to clearly there are you know, I mean? and you know really good Bible students and a lot of them think that the angel of the Lord or some angel of the Lord passages are talking about Jesus. They've certainly got lots of people behind them. They've got some good reasons for that. I'm I'm still stubborn on that point for me. Yeah. Uh, partial. I'm still of the conviction that the angel represents the Lord so closely that they actually more or less impersonate the Lord. It's kind of how the prophets did. Sometimes the prophets are talking and pretty soon it's like the Lord's speaking. You know, where did the prophet trail off and the Lord begin? Well, I mean, it's still the prophet who's panning it, but, but the Lord's speaking through him so much that it's like the Lord directly. I think that's true with some of these angel of the Lord passages. That the angel of the Lord is the angel that the Lord is sending, represents the Lord, is the Lord's spokesman, and sometimes the angel actually is about like having the Lord there because of his close representation of the Lord. I still struggle to say that's Jesus, but I mean most brethren probably say it is. So I'm not I'm not trying to say it couldn't be. It just bugs me. I'm a skeptic. Jacob. Aren't angels sons of God, though? Like in Genesis 6, it said the sons of God left heaven. Is, are angels sons of God? Yes, in that passage, and also in Job. That would probably be the passage everybody would agree on that sons of God are angels. So are we. Yes. I don't think that matters a whole lot. I'm not sure what you're seeing in that. But, you know, so were the kings. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. Father's son language is used a lot for the idea of God adopting the king as his son. We miss that sometimes. We have struggle with some too. Uh, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And you're thinking, I wonder what day Jesus was created. No, no, no. Begotten in the sense of made you the king made you the son in the sense of this position as king. I think we need to look into that a little bit more, maybe. So I don't know that that's all that big a deal one way or the other. That's pretty common Old Testament language or Bible language. Okay. Um, just going back to what Ryan kind of said about the angels, um, I kind of had the impression that in uh, Genesis 32, when Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord, it was Jesus because... He is capitalized, and he says, "You have wrestled with God." So there, I thought capitalized men just capitalized stuff, so you can't. You gotta watch that. And but then he also said, "You have wrestled with God." 
Well, I agree with you on that viewpoint because you look when you look into Isaiah 12. Yes, and I think he'd been wrestling with God all his life, and I think when God sent the angel, he's wrestling with God. I don't think that necessarily means that it's God himself or God the Son. I say a lot of people are just in disagreement with me on that. I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic, but I still am not there, so that's where I'm at. You can be wherever you want. <laughs> okay, uh, how about second question and answer? Uh, different source for the question here, 8 to 13. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Okay, so this is Daniel's question now. What will be the outcome of these events? He wants to know what this is all about and what the outcome will be. And first of all, what's he told in verse 9? Go your way. Yeah, because? These words are concealed. Why? Because Daniel just sealed them up. Well, yeah, but why did he just seal them up? Because they don't apply to right now. Yes. This is not for Daniel's era. So I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, this applies for later. So you don't have to really worry that much about not understanding all these details. Wasn't really writing this for your benefit specifically anyway. You know how prophecies are. They're a lot easier to understand in light of fulfillment than they are before that. I would assume that the righteous reading this in the era of Antiochus Epiphanes are saying, oh, yeah, wow, yes, right. You know, because then it's, then it's there. Then you see it, and then you can match it up. So to some extent, it's not for death. Then he says, he does tell us some things about that period, Maybe more for the benefit of those who will read it later. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. You know, the righteous people are going to go through a lot. You know, purged, purified, and refined are painful terms when it comes to what happens to the righteous. Great outcome, but you, you, you know, how do you refine something normally? Fire. Yeah, exactly. And here, I think the fire of the persecution and the adversity that they were going to go through. And it's going to be a tough time. They're going to come out pure, but in the process, ouch. So, prepare for that. But the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. The wicked, it's not going to do any good for them. Even the calamities, they're not going to get it. They're just going to stay wicked. But those who have insight, they're going to understand. You see these who understand, those who are purified. Now, 
he gives us some special um, teaching right here in 11 and 12. From that, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. It's a long time. And I think he says that for verse 12, in part. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Now, I take it that by 1,335 days, that's when God's people have gained victory. That's when Antiochus' power will have been broken, and he'll be driven out, and the temple will be reconsecrated, and everything will be cool. But now you think about it. 1,290 days. What about the guys who stick it out, and they go to about day 500, and they just give up? They go to day 800 and they give up. They go to day 1100 and they give up. They go to 1280 and they just decide it's never going to happen. Blessed is the one who waits for the 1335 days. That's 45 days later. And by that time, the victory is evident. I mean, that's what we need so much. You know, what if Joseph in Egyptian prison had said, it's been seven years. It's been nine years. It's been 12 years. That's I, I, What if he hadn't gone to that 13th year? You know, that's what we always need is this teaching to endure. Nobody said it would happen in 126 days. 129, I guess. And maybe the 1290. You know, nobody ever said to Joseph, three years and you're good. And maybe 13. And maybe who knows how long. And wouldn't it be a shame to give up right before the victory comes? He's saying, dies, hang in there. I don't know if this is intended to correspond with some specific historical time. I'm inclined by the symbolic nature of the book to say no. It's possible. I'm more inclined to think the 1290 is the time times and half a time. Now, in Revelation, it's 1260. Not sure how to account for that. Some would suggest maybe an extra month thrown in, as sometimes you do to even out the years. Maybe that's the idea. But I suspect the 1290 has to do with this time, times, half time, this half of seven that is a really long time, but it's not a complete, perfect, whole period of time. And that the 1335 is just saying, you know, basically this idea of, you know, 45 more days, and it's victorious. Again, there may be a specific period of time like that, I don't know what it is if there is. I feel more comfortable with a symbolic explanation. If they found a specific period like that, great. Maybe there is. I don't know. That's obviously kind of, you know, unusual teaching for us. You know. But it'd be, make a great sermon. You know, wait for 1335. You know, I mean, that, that's, a, that's what we need. You know, hang in there for the 1335. I think that's exactly what he's saying. I think he's saying that for the benefit of those who are going to live through this, who are going to be tempted 
get discouraged and give up before the victory. Comments and questions through verse 12. Did you do the math on how long? I did like five years or? It's about three and a half. I cheated through math, so that explained that. <laughs> I wasn't a Christian. When I was. <laughs> that made more sense. That's funny. <laughs> oh man, should have paid more attention. You need to use that line sometime when somebody's struggling with math, you know, you probably cheated through math, you know. <laughs> You're both <pretty> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at 13. The comfort for Daniel, but as for you, go your way to the end, and you will enter into rest, and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. You know, Daniel, what does he need to do? Keep, keep persevering till the end. He'll enter to rest and rise again at the end. Um, so, Daniel needs to persevere, and the guys living through the 1290 need to persevere to the 1335. Anything on the book of death? Very cool. That was fun. Thank you for uh, letting when, me do this. When did we start this book? I don't know. It's been a while. <laughs> We're going to move to Genesis for a few minutes. I think I can introduce Genesis in uh, the next few minutes. And uh, that would be a uh, you know, helpful thing perhaps to do.